So good morning, Providence. It's an honor. It's a privilege to speak before you. Uh, when Pastor Jared asked me to do it, uh, this is the message that had been on my mind for quite some time. Um, so we put it together, and I'm extremely happy because I get to knock off my bucket list uh, preaching by waterfall. <laughs> So if you, my last message, we talked about trees and a little bit, we're going to talk about a tree, but today more, we're going to focus on what the fruit from the tree is. So let's discuss the parable. So a man, an owner of a vineyard comes seeking fruit from one of his fig trees. It is not uncommon in Israel that if you have a vineyard where you're obviously going grapes and olives that occasionally you you plant a fig tree, it gives some structure to the yard. It allows for the vines to grow up on it. It allows you to put in some of the other scaffolding that the vines would grow on. This is the third year that he has come seeking fruit from this tree, and he finds none. Deciding that he no longer wants to waste resources, time, and ground on it, he tells the vineyard keeper to cut it down. After all, his garden can use this land for a more fertile tree. The groundkeeper intercedes and requests another year to work with the tree. He's going to give it some fertilizer and dig around the roots. And he says, if it bears fruit next year, then all is well. And if not, then we will cut it down. So what we're going to do is let's begin with taking a look at each of the ele- what each of the elements represents. So the owner represents God the Father. As the owner, he has invested into this tree time, money, effort, and he has an expectation that this fig tree will produce figs. He has a relationship with this tree. He knows it. He's been visiting it for three years. He's been monitoring its progress. This is not an absentee landlord that just happens to show up and sees a barren tree and wants to rip it out. He is hands-on, knowing his garden. But his patience and tolerance have run out, and he is well within his rights to cut this tree down and replace it with one that will produce fruit. The vine keeper obviously represents Jesus Christ. He has worked with the tree to provide for its needs so that it will produce the conditions needed for this tree to grow fruit. When the owner decides to cut the tree down, he pleads for another year to work with the tree. From certain point of view, the vine keeper has taken responsibility for the production of fruit on this tree. He is going to work with this tree, and it is fair to say that if the tree does not produce fruit, the vine keeper, in a sense, has failed. The vine keeper also understands that there is a limit to his efforts. One more year, and then there is nothing else he's able to do. So you can guess that he is going to put every effort he can into making sure this tree produces fruit so that when it does not produce fruit next year, He can say, this is not on me. The fig tree. In classic biblical metaphors, the fig tree represents Israel. It can represent the nation as a whole. It can represent a subgroup. It can even represent a single individual. What it always represents is that there is a close personal relationship. Fig trees are a favorite of God's. And if he mentions a fig tree, he's talking about his people. The fig tree is the third specific tree mentioned in the Bible, after the tree of life and after the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The fig tree begins its close relationship with mankind in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve take its leaves to sew loincloths to cover their nakedness. 
Now, fig trees can produce two harvests a year. In the spring, they grow their leaves and produce new growth shoots, which will produce large, delicious figs in the fall. Right around Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, this is when they are in season. These shoots, which then become known as the old growth, will produce a second harvest in the spring, right around Passover time. This second production is not, their figs are not quite as large, they're not quite as delicious, but they are good for food. And they happen before the leaves show up in the spring, before the new growth. So I'm going to step aside for a second to give you a parallel verse, and this won't be on the test at the end of the discussion. But if you're in Jerusalem during Passover and you see a fig tree with leaves, you would have a reasonable expectation that there would be fruit to quench your hunger. And as you approach and see no fruit, you might say some harsh words towards the tree. For those of you taking notes, this is a reference to Matthew 11 and Mark 21. But that is a discussion for another time. There are three main reasons that fig trees don't produce fruit. One, it's not mature enough. It usually takes a fig tree two to three years to mature enough to produce fruit. And Jewish law tells us in Leviticus 19, 23 to 25, that one cannot eat the fruit from a tree during its first three years. In the fourth year, the fruit is holy unto the Lord and should be offered up as offering, although the owner may decide to partake in that fruit also. So during one years one through three, the owner should have no expectation of fruit. He has been visiting for three years with expectation, and we can deduce from this that the tree is most likely six years old. It is mature enough to produce figs. Incorrect water conditions. As this is in a vineyard with a vine keeper, I'm pretty sure he's monitoring water conditions and making sure the plants have the water they need. Incorrect fertilizer. This would seem to be part of the reason, as the vine keeper wants to work with the roots and apply fertilizer. An interesting thing about fig trees is if they have an incorrect nitrogen level in their fertilizer, they may be big, beautiful, with large leaves and never produce a fig. The fruit itself. Here is where we come to the fruit of this lesson, pun intended. In order for the fig tree to avoid being cut down, it must produce fruit. It must produce the fruit that the owner is seeking. We can sum up this parable by saying, produce fruit or die. It becomes imperative that we understand what the fruit is that will prevent our destruction. So what does the fruit of the tree represent? Is this fruit works? Is it the things we do in service to God and in service to the church and in service to each other? It's an easy idea to discuss this as the fruit that's produced and that we're doing things that he ordains for us to do and he calls us to do, the provision that we provide for the poor and lost, and all the things we do in service to the church, to others, and to God is our fruit. And this is a legitimate interpretation for some uses of this imagery and for many applications. But it does not work here for this verse. If it did, then the verse would essentially mean produce works or perish. And we know that works do not lead to salvation. And consider this, of all the fruit that I just listed, the service to others, loving others, doing things for the church, doing things for each other, all of that fruit is given to others. 
this fruit, this specific fig on this tree is the fruit that God wants. This is the fruit that we have to give to God. Repentance. The fruit that God is looking for, the fruit that will keep us from destruction, is repentance. This is found within the context of the first five verses. Jesus is discussing two situations where people have died and asks, were those who died worse sinners than you? No. His answer is, if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. Repent or perish. Fruit, tree cut down. This parable immediately follows that discussion, and we are told if the tree produces no fruit, it will be cut down. Repent or perish. It is a repentant heart is the fruit that God is seeking. John the Baptist speaks about this in Matthew 3. Verse 8, he states, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And in verse 10, he paints essentially the same picture that Jesus gives us when he says the axe is laid to the fruit of the tree, produce good fruit, or be cut down. And last week, Pastor Jared reminds us that in Jeremiah, God calls Israel to repentance lest they be sent into exile or destroyed. Consider the thief on the cross from Luke 23, verses 39 to 43. He's hanging on a cross for the things that he has done in life. He is hanging next to Jesus Christ. He realizes who Christ is and expresses a repentant heart and asks Jesus to remember him. And Jesus replies and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. This man will not spend one minute serving the Lord on earth. He will not witness to a single soul. He will not mentor, disciple, baptize, serve another, or do any work in service to the church. But with the production of his repentance, he has repaired the relationship with God, and he will be in paradise. God is looking for the repentant heart. It is the fruit that must be produced for salvation. Repentance is called for throughout the Bible. All of the prophets call for repentance, a turning of our lives back to God, a rededication to God, learning and wanting and desiring the things that make God happy. That God would look for the repentant heart predates the arrival of Christ. It does not originate with Christianity, and it is common, it is does not originate with Christianity, and it is a common and important theme in the story of God's relationship with humanity. So what is repentance? The Hebrew words shuv and nachem, and I'm not sure those are the correct pronunciations, (laughs) but they combine to give us repentance, and they mean to return and to feel sorrow. It is a turning back to God. The Greek word metania, which is compound word, and in essence means to change one's conscience or mind. It also has a time factor in there, which means that to have a change of conduct and mind that is different from what has come before. It is going one direction, repenting is turning around and going back towards God. Repentance is a summons to a personal, absolute, and ultimate unconditional surrender to God 
the sovereign ruler of the universe. It is a complete change of direction towards God, a change of our minds and a change of our hearts. It is not just compliance with God's will. It is not just obedience to God's law. God has promised us a new heart and with the changes in desires. When he replaces our heart of stone because we've repented, he puts a heart of flesh in there that aligns with him and his desires. Your desires and your heart will change. And when we have this new heart in Christ, we become new creatures. In the image of Christ, who is one with God and one who does all's desires are in line with the will of God. Repentance completes the forgiven repentance cycle that renews and repairs the relationship between God and man. For us, if I've done a bad thing against someone and I truly repent for it, until they forgive me, that relationship is not repaired. There may still be a relationship, but it's not a correct relationship. On the other hand, if someone's done something for me against me and I can forgive them, But without their repentance, that relationship is never repaired. Because I can forgive someone, you can be sorry for what you've done, but until you repent, the odds are you may do it again. It is with the full repentance that I know that I can trust once again and have that relationship with you. So you can forgive another and you can repent for another, but it is the combination of the two that repairs the relationship. And for us, this can happen in either order. I can forgive you before you repent, or I can repent before you forgive me. Either way. But God has already forgiven us. He is waiting on our repentance so that we can repair our relationship with him. Repentance sets the stage for all other fruit we bear. Every other piece of fruit that we've done, it was, it's great, it's good, but it's not perfected until we have the fruit of repentance. We're doing it to please God because we've repented and we want to please God. We want to make God happy. We want to do the things that God wants us to do. With our wills, desires, and heart now aligned toward God, we can do the good works that he has ordained for us to do. We will shine Christ through all that we do. Without repentance, it is still possible to do great things, even things in the name of the Lord. But it is not done with the repaired relationship that is required for salvation. Those with this broken relationship will be told by Jesus at the end, even though they did works in his name, Jesus will say, I knew you not. Depart from me. It is the relationship of repentance that saves us from destruction. The unrepentant heart. The unrepentant heart can feel sorry for the things that they've done. Many times we ask, are you sorry for what you did or are you sorry that you got caught? Because you can be sorry for something, do it again and be sorry for something, and do it again and be sorry for something. You may even do something, be sorry for it, and overcome the act of sin, but where is your real desire? If a man cheats on his wife and he repent, he, does, he just says, I'm sorry for it, I won't do it again, he may spend the rest of his life and never do it again. But if every time he's looking at a woman thinking, wow, it would really be nice, you've overcome the act, but you haven't broken the desire. If the desire is to do sin, have you really been repentant? You may do the good works of God out of obligation or obedience, but not out of a desire to please God. 
I can imagine how unjoyful this Christian is for this in this experience, that you've never allowed God to change your desires, but I suppress them, and I do what I am commanded to do. So I go to church on Sunday because that's what I have to do. I give to the poor because that's what I'm commanded to do. I serve in the nursery because that's what I'm commanded to do. Okay. Think of this. Every time someone says to you, Christians have so many rules to follow, it's because your heart's not repentant, because you don't desire it. You should come to church because you desire to please God. Your desire should be to come to church. Your desire should be to love the children and go serve in the nursery. Your desire should be to care for the poor, so you go out and you do things to care for the poor. This is repentance. The unrepentant heart withholds themselves from surrender to God and His sovereignty. We can rationalize this when we think a loving God does not care who I love, what I do, the actions that I take to make my life better, or anything that I do in life. He will love me always, and a loving God would not destroy me. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says if you don't repent, you're going to perish. It really comes down to the unrepentant heart wanting it both ways. They want to enjoy all the blessings that Christianity offers, but none of the responsibilities because they don't want to surrender to God and do the things that he desires. They want to do their own thing. The repentant heart. The repentant heart feels true sorrow, true remorse, and true contrition for the things that they have done. They desire to change the course of their lives. They look to please God in the things that they do. They have realized what their wrongdoing has produced, and they don't want to produce that anymore. They desire to set right the damage that has been done. They don't just look to be forgiven, but once forgiven and repentant, they want to repair the damage that's done. They want to make restitution to those they have wronged. The repentant heart wants the removal of the desire to sin. Jesus sets this new standard for us in Matthew 5, during the course of the Beatitudes. He tells us that if we have the desire to sin, we have indeed sinned. He says that if I look upon a woman with lust, I've already committed adultery. It is the heart and the desire to look upon her in that way that I've already committed adultery long before the act happens. That desire has to be repented for and removed. Peter te- or I'm sorry, John tells us in 1 John 3:15, he drives his point home when he writes everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Imagine the joyful life that one leads when your desires are in line with God. And the things that you do align with your desires. Because when I do things that I want, that I desire to do, I'm a happy camper. The question is, are my desires correct? And if they're correct with God, and I'm doing things God, then he is happy, and I am happy. The repentant heart surrenders all to God, and trusts him in everything always. The repentant heart, this is the fruit that God desires when he plants his garden. The lesson is repent or perish not do good works or perish. The repentant heart is a heart after God's own. King David sets for us the example. His heart is described as repentant, obedient, faithful, devoted, loving, trusting, respectful, reverent, and humble. 
Is David a perfect man? No way, shape, or form. Does David sin? Many, many, many times. He even sins in such a way that God will not allow him to build the temple. He says it will be his son Solomon that will build God's house. But David has a relationship with God because he is repentant for his sin, and he desires to please God. You can do all the good works in the world. You can live a near-perfect law of Moses' life. You can love all your neighbors and live a selfish, sacrificial life. But without repentance and a renewed relationship with God, you will still perish. So Jesus is sitting around chatting about a couple of events where people have died and asks, were these sinners worse than any other sinner? He says, no. And unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. And he follows it up with the parable of a tree that does not produce fruit and is bound to be cut down. God has invested in you. He has invested love, time, property, And via his son, blood, you are the only thing that God has ever purchased. He has an expectation that this investment will produce repentance and a renewed relationship with you. He has a desire for a close, loving, personal relationship with you. So we must be able to look within and ask, am I repentant? Am I turning back towards God and surrendering to Him? Or am I going through the actions because that's what I'm told i got to do? Am I just following rules or am I doing the desires of God because I desire to do them? Am I producing the fruit that God is seeking when He enters the garden? The fruit of the repentant heart. The good news is, repentance is a multi-stage process. It doesn't happen overnight. It follows along with the course of sanctification, where it will continually, continually, continually renew. It is fully possible to be repentant in one area of your life, while God works on another, and you will still have other hidden things that God has not yet brought up to work on. That is the process by which we do. The question is, do you have, are you re- able to be repentant? Do you want to repent? Jesus will work with us to become repentant over all our sin desires, giving him time and love and faithfulness and surrender. Jesus' divine keeper worked with the fig tree. He makes conditions right for us to produce the fruit of redemption. And sometimes this means digging around our roots, pruning our branches, and cutting out parts of us that are not needed. Jesus will intercede with the Father to give time to continue working with us. But we must be aware that the time of opportunity will come to an end. Without notice, unexpectedly, no man knowing the time of day. And time is short. Is there a change of attitude, desire, outlook, and faith as we hand over more and more and more of ourselves to God? This is a continuous process and maturity will take time. Sanctification will continue for as long as it takes Jesus to bring us to glorification. Are you making progress in your relationship with God? Are you growing in repentance and producing the fruit that God is looking for? When the owner of the vineyard comes searching your tree for fruit, 
Can the vine keeper say, yes, this tree is producing fruit that you desire, and I expect it to produce more next year? The repentant heart. The repentant heart will maintain a close, loving relationship with God, no matter the circumstances. The repenting heart will produce great fruit to serve God and others. The repentant heart will, with great love, proclaim the truth to the lost and the dying. And the repentant heart will stare into the face of persecution and death and declare Jesus is Lord. Let us pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time gathered before you. We thank you that you love us and that you expect us to produce the fruit as you invest in us. Keep investing in us, Lord, and let Jesus work with us so that we may produce that which you desire, so that we can be saved from the parish and death that comes. In Jesus' name, amen.